Heavenly Father, we approach you in this moment with a healthy dose of fear and trembling. God, we recognize that when a Christian opens the word of God, that you may have your way with us, that you might change us, and anytime the Spirit changes us, it is painful. But God, the reality is, is that we as Christians desperately desire to be changed. We don't want to leave here the same as when we came in. We want to be constantly transformed, made more like Christ. And so through the power of your word, have your way. Whatever it means, whatever the cost, we invite you to have your way with us today. May Jesus be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I love history. And uh, recently I was listening to a podcast learning about a great man of faith in American history that, to be honest with you, I didn't know much about before. His name was Frederick Douglass. You can put a picture up of this incredible, mighty man of faith. Frederick Douglass was born a slave during the days of slavery in our country, and as a young boy, he got to meet a man that he would know as Uncle Lawson, who directed him towards the scriptures and told him about Jesus Christ, and that developed a life of faith for Frederick Douglass that would guide him be his North Star for the rest of his life. Uh, this man should go down as one of the great men of American history. As he grew up, he uh, began to look at the scriptures, and Uncle Lawson reminded him of scriptures that said, you can ask for anything in the Lord's name. Be bold in your prayer requests. And, and Frederick Douglass began to think, you know, asking for freedom from the harsh conditions of my slavery might not be a bad request. He got that freedom. He escaped. Frederick Douglass became one of the great American men who was a leading voice in the abolitionist movement. And as I got to know this man, reading a little bit of his life, what most struck me above everything else was not the incredible things he said, the incredible things he wrote, the incredible places and people he spoke in front of. I mean, the record's unbelievable. But it's this quote of his. Ten years after his freedom, he writes this. Writing back to the man who was his harsh slave master. I entertain no malice toward you personally. <clears throat> there is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. There's nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. <clears throat> when a soul is surrendered to Jesus Christ, thank you, my love, when a soul is surrendered to Jesus Christ, there is nothing that is impossible. When a soul is surrendered, not when he concocts all his strength and he, he figures out what courageous leadership looks like, not when he studies how to do all the things society says he should be able to do, not once he learns how to read and write and once he learns how to publicly speak. When a soul is surrendered, to the Lord, there is nothing that's impossible. God has his way with that person. Many of us have a view and a vision for our life that's kind of like looking at our life through tunnel vision. We've got this plan, and we say, hey, uh, here's, here's practically what my life might look like. I've got it planned out. Uh, I, I have a picture of my life that society largely has painted for me. I know where I'm going. Sure, I want God to do something with me so long as it maintains within a fairly safe distance of this tunnel I've got planned for my life. And the reality is, is that God has never placed a tunnel over any of our lives. 
When any of our souls are surrendered to God, what that means is that God can have his way with us. And the reality is, is that God's got a call on your life to call you to the mighty adventurous, to the radical in the name of Jesus Christ. To blow up the paradigm of what society says, this is what life ought to look like. And to begin living this life on mission for what God says your life should look like. To listen where he says you should go. To offer forgiveness to the people he says you should offer forgiveness to, to. To go and speak in places where he says you should go and speak. A life of surrender is a life of adventure. And it's the life that the Lord invites you to. Last week we began this series looking at Judges. And Judges is this book in the Old Testament. Which I hope what we explored and the foundation we laid last week is that though this book takes place thousands of years before the coming of Christ, which means even more thousands of years before our day today, there's something highly relevant about it for us today. The heart condition of the men and the women we meet, the relationship of God to his people, the the understanding and the cultural values of the society that they were living in, it's like they're describing 21st century Chicago. The book of the Judges takes place all these years ago, and yet the society, it's like they're walking out the doors of Chicago and saying, just like what you're experiencing, that's what they experienced back here. Let's look at their failures and let's look at their victories together. The book of Judges, as we described, is rated R, and we, we, we come across these horrendous stories of what happens to a society, particular God's people, particularly God's people, when they take their eyes off God and they say, I think we'll just go our own way. Let's make our own rules. Let's do life as we please. Let's just pursue our own passions instead of the Lord's passions. And the book of Judges highlights this cyclical decline of God's people into the worst, the worst moments in the Bible. But even more important than that, it shows that God consistently pursues his people. Even when life gets tremendously awful, when they dig holes for themselves that it looks like they can't get out of, God pursues And he loves, and he sends a deliverer. Today we're skipping forward to look at the life of Gideon. Gideon's this incredible judge. He's the wrong guy for the job. God's going to raise up a a judge to deliver Israel out of the hands of an oppressing slave master. And uh, God raises up the wrong guy. And uh, he's a bit of a coward. And yet God is going to have his way with Gideon. What I want to look at today is just the first half of Gideon's life, and it's the call of Gideon. And I think what we're going to find is that for us to move to a surrendered life, a life of total submission, total surrender, God, what would you have me do? There are four primary fears that God's got to get us through that are highlighted in Gideon's life. The first fear is this, the fear of your circumstances. The fear of your circumstances. And for God to move us through this fear, he's got to have a mindset shift in us. And what he's got to do is he's got to move us from crying out in remorse about our circumstances to crying out in repentance about our circumstances. If you recall, the book of Judges has this cycle it goes through where God's people continue to fall into these moments of sin. We see that in Judges chapter 6 verse 1. It reads this way. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. They, uh, 
uh, d- did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and what we saw from last week is that that meant they abandoned God, the God of their fathers, and they began to worship false gods, particularly Baal and Asherah. And what we know is that those false gods required child sacrifice of living children. And it, this was an abomination is what Judges calls it. They turned their back on God. They worshiped false gods. And and God gives them over as a disciplinary action. He allows them to be enslaved by these Midianites. And in the next few verses, what we read is that these Midianites were unlike their other oppressors. What they would do is every year as the harvest came in, as the Jews were living in the land trying to gather their crops, they would come in and they would plunder them. They'd take all their crops, they'd take all their sheep, they'd take everything they had and they'd force the Jewish people to run and to hide in the caves. This was a systematic way to remove all hope from a group of people. This was a way to intentionally demoralize an entire group of people, to remove hope and to say, you cannot get out of this. That There's no way you can remove yourself from this situation. You're stuck. And every time that they had a moment, every time the crops began to come in and they said, maybe this will be the year we won't have to be hungry for a season, the Midianites, it says, would swoop in like a swarm of locusts, demoralize them. Into that moment, we read Judges chapter 6, verse 6. It says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. There are times in our life when we are forced to cry out to the Lord for help. Sometimes our circumstances are such that literally we, we don't have anywhere else to turn, we're stuck. It seems that we don't see the light of the end of the tunnel. We're, we're just in a broken moment. And, and, and in those moments, the Israelites did what we should be doing. They, they cried out to God. And there can be many reasons for this. Perhaps in our life, the reason we get stuck in these moments is just like the Israelites. We've been foolish. We've rebelled against God. God's been out of a hand of love, disciplining us putting us in a very hard situation, determined to get us back towards looking at God. And in the midst of our discipline, because of our foolish actions, God desires us to cry out to him. Some of us, it's the other way around. Some of us have had sinful people who have abused us, and we're in a hard spot, not because of our own actions, but because someone else has oppressed us, and we're broken, and we can't see the the light at the end of the tunnel. And what we need to know is the rest of God that says that there is rest to be had for your weary soul. In both of those situations, God invites us to cry out to him. Sometimes our situation is a little bit of both of that, to be honest with you. Into this hopelessness, God interestingly sends a judge. Now if we could, can I put that slide up of the the cycle? The cycle, there we go. The cycle that we're going to see in Judges kind of goes around this circle where the people rebel, God gets angry, they're oppressed by their enemies, then they cry out in repentance. That's where we're at right now. The people, verse 6, cry out to God. What's the very next step? Deliverance through a chosen judge. What we would expect, based on the book of Judges, is the very next thing for God to raise up a hero. But he doesn't do that. The first thing he does in this story is he sends a preacher. (laughs) Read with me in this chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, as God sends this preacher. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you've not obeyed my voice. Short sermon. What's the preacher trying to do? He's trying to convict them of sin. You've not obeyed my voice. One purpose of that sermon, God is faithful, you're not. And in this moment, that's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? Because in verse 6, I thought the Israelites just cried out. Hadn't they got to a moment where they were crying out to God, and yet God sends a preacher as if to say, your crying out is not what I intend for you. Sometimes I think it's easy in our circumstances to cry out in remorse instead of crying out in repentance. And I think that's exactly what these Israelites are doing. And God wants to move them from remorse to repentance, from being broken and devastated by the circumstances and the result of our sin, to being broken and devastated over the reality that we detracted from the people seeing the glory of God because of our way we were living our life. See, remorse is all about us. Remorse says, my life is hard, my circumstances are hard, the weight of the world is crouching in on me, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do, I'm broken, I need help, would somebody help me? There's room in scripture for remorse. But we can't stop there, and and I think what these people are doing right now is they're crying out because they got nothing else to do, and they haven't gotten to their heart. I see this in my kids all the time. What I do is oftentimes if my kids are uh, uh, rejecting me, if they're somehow breaking my rules in my house, I'll pull them aside and say, hey, you're in timeout. You need to sit in timeout. And what they'll do, especially my two younger twins, the second I put them in timeout, here's what I hear from them. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What are they doing? They just want to get out of the circumstance. Life's hard for that moment, and and they know if they just cry out, say the right words, that they can get back to what they want to do. But the reality is, if I as a dad settle for that, I'm sorry, the moment their restriction is over, they're right back into their old ways again. Because all they wanted was their circumstances fixed. God wants to move us past what our circumstances are to the other place, to repentance, where we realize that our sinful actions, our rebellion to God, didn't just bring devastation to us, but actually blur the very mission that God's assigned to us. That we're a people, a a city on a hill that are designed to live a life on mission of this beautiful relationship with God where we follow his ways and it's so beautiful that the world and the nations look in on our life and see Jesus in all his glory, in all his love, in all his sacrifice. And our sin doesn't just bring brokenness to us, but it blurs the way the nations see us. It blurs the way the nations see our God. And repentance places God back in the center and says, what have I done? My rebellion to God has blurred the way the nations see my God. Oh God, would you forgive me for that rebellion? When you find yourself in hard spots, do do you more often pray prayers of remorse or prayers of repentance? Do you cry out to God because of the way your actions have detracted from the glory of God, or do you cry out to God because your circumstances are hard? 
There is no promise in Scripture that your circumstances will get better in this life. He may. He might. Ask in his name, and if it is his will, he will do it. Our greatest mission ought to be to project the glory of God to the nations, and that is what our aim must be. And when we repent, we put God back at the center of our heart. Do we pray prayers of remorse or prayers of repentance? The second fear we've got to get through, the second fear that Gideon had to get through, was the fear of failure. And I think the transition that had to happen in Gideon's heart for this was that he had to move from this position of saying, I'm on my own, to this position of saying, God is with me. Can someone say the words, God is with me? Say, say it again, say, God is with me. Gideon had to go from I'm on my own to God is is with me. Pick up in verses 11 and 12 with me. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. Oprah made her way in the Bible, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Talk about putting wind in a man's sails. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. You want to put wind in a man's sails? You say something like that to him, and you'll put wind in his sails. Now, this is an interesting moment. This angel of the Lord comes alongside this man named Gideon as he's sifting through the wheat in a wine press. The, the task of Sifting through wheat in that day and required you to go up to the top of the windiest hill where everyone would see you and throw, wind up, uh, throw the wheat up in the air so that the wind would blow the chaff away. That was on the top of the hill and the wine presses were oftentimes hidden in caves in pits dug in the ground where you couldn't be seen. Literally, he's probably adding days to the task. Why is he down there? He's rightfully afraid of the Midianites. Here we meet Gideon, and the opening scene we have of him is that he's a bit of a coward. I wouldn't go so far as to say that that was wrong of him. To be honest, if I was in his situation, I wouldn't even have the courage to go make my own food, knowing that someone was going to steal it from me, perhaps abuse me in the process. But here we see this man hiding, literally afraid of his shadow. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's afraid of his shadow. He can't go to the top of the hill. His shadow would be seen from miles away. So he goes where he can't be seen. And in that place of hiding, the Lord, the angel of the Lord appears to him. And he says, I see something in you. I see that there's work in your life. There's work for you to do. And, and the first thing that Gideon says is he goes, you got the wrong guy. Mighty man of valor? What are you talking about? Look at me. I'm, I'm hiding in a wine press. I'm the wrong guy for the job. There's, there's no way I could deliver Israel. What are you talking about? Deliver the people of God? You got the wrong guy. Me, mighty. Read with me verses 14 and 15. Gideon responds this way. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And, it, and Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Gideon's absolutely terrified of his failure. He, he's looking at the, the background of who he is, and he's saying, man, I come from all the wrong places. My, my pedigree does not live up to the task that you've assigned me. If you look back on my history, I'm a man of 
cowardice. I'm a man of not living up to the standards of God's people. I come from a family of brokenness. My dad worships idols. My clan's the weakest. My people have been hiding for years. I'm not strong. You name the excuse, Gideon's got it. He's got an absolute fear of failure. And the Lord says, I will be with you, verse 16. I will be with you. I suspect in that moment, a tingle went up Gideon's spine. I will be with you. See, for a, a man like Gideon, he, he may have these slight memories of this other man of faith that had come a few years before him named Moses. When Moses was raised up by God, and God said to Moses, hey Moses, I want you to deliver, to deliver the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses threw back at God, but God, I'm a stutterer. I can't speak clearly. Do you remember how God responded to Moses back in the book of Exodus? What did he say? Oh, but Moses, I will be with you. A couple hundred years later, God comes down, looks down at this man of Gideon who's saying, I'm terrified, I'm not the guy for the job, I can't do it. And those same words echo that he said to Moses, he looks right at Gideon, he says, you man of valor, I will be with you. Talk about a man who in that moment begins to surrender his life over and say, what is different? Something about the story of redemptive history, how God has moved throughout his people over time. Something about God saying, I will be with you, changes what can be done, doesn't it? The New Testament, we look forward, we look backwards, and we remember the words of Jesus Christ. Remember the Great Commission, thousands of years after this moment that he spoke to Gideon, Jesus in the Great Commission looks down and he gives us a task. He says, hey, you've got a similar task to what Gideon had to do, church. Just like Gideon, I'm assigning you the task of being a light to the nations, allowing the nations to see the glory of God through you. And just like Gideon, we should cry out, you got the wrong guy. There's no way. How are we going to go to the nations? How are we going to let Jesus be seen through our lives? We're rebellious through and through. We're full of cowardice. I can barely pluck up the courage to have a conversation with my neighbor about the love of Jesus. What were Jesus' words? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you. These are the words that God spoke to Moses. These are the words that God then spoke to Gideon. And these are the words that God fuels his church with. God has assigned the church this unbelievable mission. To be a light to the nations. And, and what we do is we place this tunnel vision over our life that say that there is no way that God could do something that outrageous through me. I come from the wrong place. I come from the wrong family. I come from a broken family. I didn't come to know Jesus till I was too late. I've got too many years of brokenness. I've been struggling with alcoholism. I've been struggling with abuse. I've been struggling with self-abuse. I've got too many friends in too many wrong places. I've got too many people who know too much about me. We bring all our resume to God and we say there's no way God could actually call me to be one of these people that actually go carry out his mission. And we've forgotten the promise of Jesus Christ. That he has already stamped over your life the same words that he stamped on Gideon's life when he redefined who he was. When he looked you in the eye and he said, I 
will be with you. The life of surrendering to Christ is not about getting your life in order. It's not about figuring out how do you be a more courageous leader? How do you be a more better, stronger administrator? The life of following Christ and living obediently is a life of surrender. Where you look at a God who says, I am with you. And if I am with you, there's nothing that can stand against you. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing can. What can stop the mission that God's given you? Nothing can. Remember, when Jesus looked at his disciples, he says, the gates of hell won't prevail against you. That means not even you and your own brokenness can prevail against the mission God's assigned you. As we learn what it means to live fully surrendered to Jesus, we've got to get over this fear of failure, as if somehow our brokenness is a hindrance to what God might do. If it's on your shoulders, it's a hindrance. But if God is with you, nothing can stand against you. Look at what happens in the very next moment, verses 34 and 35. After Gideon has said all of this, it says this, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord, literally, it, it pictures in the Hebrew the Spirit of the God, of Lord hovering around Gideon like a piece of clothing so that wherever he went, the first thing to bump into anybody was the Spirit that was hovering before him. It's the same promise that we have today. In fact, what we have today is one better than what Gideon got. Gideon went out to deliver Israel with the spirit enclosed around him. We go out to tell about the nations the love of Jesus Christ with the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. The spirit of God transforming your heart from the inside out. Not on the outside as a piece of clothing, but actually changing the very nature of your heart from the inside. We've got to move from a place of there's no way I could do that to God is with me. The third fear that Gideon had to get through was the fear of his past. The fear of his past. We've got to move from I've got a broken past to God has rewritten my future. In verse 15, we read this. I'm going to go back just a bit. We've already read the verse once. After he gets this mission from God to deliver Israel, he says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. You see, Gideon had a problem. We've already seen a little bit about this, but he came from the wrong family. His dad worshipped idols, and that's really all he knew. He had a past that was kind of screwed up. And some of us come from broken pasts with broken families. Uh, if I know something about uh, what God's doing around the globe today, it's this, that for many folks around the nations, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the very hardest thing for them to do the next thing is to go back to their family and tell them that they've now decided to trust Jesus Christ. And that's the same for a lot of you in this room as well. Our families are some of the closest people in our entire lives, and, and sometimes when you place your faith in Jesus, to actually go back to your family and say, I've been redefined by this God that I now trust, that's the hardest conversation. And Gideon's got all these reasons to believe that he can't go forward. His past is too broken. Many of us carry our passed around with us like baggage. We walk around, and, and, and literally, it, it's as if we walk through our life with the shame of our life hindering us from moving forward even a step. We look back on the things we've done, we've noted this already, but things like alcoholism and enormous debt, 
drug abuse, mental, mental physical abuse, eating disorders, the pain we've inflicted on others, the pain we've inflicted on ourselves, and we've got this past, this, this origin of where we came from. And if you're human, if you're like me, what we tend to do is look at our past and place a lot of identity into who we once were into our resume. We tend to place a lot of identity into the things we've done in the past that might serve as a barrier to what God might do with us. And as Gideon's in the midst of telling this to this angel of the Lord, something miraculous happens. As we already saw, it's this angel of the Lord that's speaking to Gideon. And then in verse 14, the conversation shifts, and it says this same person known as the angel of the Lord, all of a sudden it says, and the Lord turned to him. And said, go in this might of yours and save Israel. All of a sudden, Gideon's eyes are open. And he realizes he's not just speaking to a messenger from God, but, but God has appeared to him in the form of a person. What we call this in the Bible is a Christophany, where Jesus Christ appears in the Old Testament. Before the incarnation of Christ, the Lord appears and speaks this truth into Gideon's Life And in this moment, Gideon's whole world is being wrecked. In this moment, he's realizing that this is not a message from God. This is actually God, the word of God, appearing to him and speaking truth into his life. When Jesus looks a person in the eye and speaks into them, he grafts them into his family. He says, the family you came from, no matter how much brokenness there is, no matter how much brokenness is in your past, I've grafted you into a new family. This same Jesus Christ who Gideon spoke to would come back in the form of a child about 2,000 years after this moment, and he would offer the same opportunity to us to be grafted into his family. This is literally what the work of the cross has accomplished. As Jesus hung on the cross, his blood poured out. What he's doing is atoning for the brokenness of our sin, of our family's sin, of the brokenness we've brought into the cohesion between us and Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus, all the brokenness that we bring into this relationship, all the past that we bring in, all the shame that we carry with us into a place like this, gets put on the cross, gets nailed up with Jesus' cross, and he says, I no longer see you based on what you've done. I see you based on what I've accomplished for you on the cross. Your debt's paid for in full. You've now been delivered. That's why Romans chapter 8 says, there, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your past, that doesn't define you. What defines you is what Christ has done for you on the cross. And now he can have his way fully with you. Romans 8.1 is the heartbeat of the church that says we're no longer defined by the mistakes we've made. The things we say we could never move past. We're now defined by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's interesting, the very next thing that Gideon's got to do, God sends him right back into his family. The number one thing from his past that Gideon had to get through with his family and the first thing he can do before he delivers Israel is get sent right back into his family. Verse 25, the angel of the Lord that we now know as Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, goes to Gideon and says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. Before Gideon can conquer Midian, he's got to conquer the fear of his dad. 
before Gideon can conquer Midian, he's got to conquer the fear of his dad. We come from a long line of broken people. If you're in this room today and, and you're looking at the equation, you're looking at the, the way your life has been organized, you're looking at the, the kind of the shame you bring into this relationship with God, and you want to say to yourself, there's no way that I could get past these broken links in my life. All we need to do is look to Gideon and see how Gideon was called to go right back in there, right back to the very place that he came from in his brokenness and proclaim the newness of the family he's been called to. Those things don't define him. Who he now is defines him. If you're in this room and you don't believe that can be true, all we got to do is look back to the long line of biblical heroes who God has used who come from tremendous brokenness. I remember I heard a preacher once say it this way. Look back on scripture. Do you remember Jacob? See, Jacob, he was a cheater. How about Peter? Peter had a temper. David, he had an affair. Noah? He got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul, he was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Abraham doubted. And get this, Lazarus was dead. If God can get through the brokenness and the backgrounds and the false resumes of those men and women, I got a pretty good feeling he can get past your brokenness too. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God can take your past and rewrite your future. God has given you a mission. It's the same mission he gave to every great man and woman of the Bible, to be a light to the nations, to be in such beautiful relationship with the God of the universe because Jesus has poured his love into your life and now you get to be a light to everyone you walk by and your past no longer hinders your ability to do that because Jesus has nailed your past on the cross. As we think about that for just a moment, I think Gideon had one more fear he had to get through. And this is the most forgotten story in the scripture. It's Gideon's fleece. The final fear he had to get through is our application today. This is the first step for many of us we've got to move to before we realize what we can be accomplished through us by the hands of the Lord. It's the fear of the unknown. The fear of the unknown. And by way of application, as we leave here today, what Gideon had to do was move from a position of saying, who is God, to get to a place where he says, God is, God is. We know the story of Gideon's fleece. Maybe you've heard this before. Just before Gideon's about to go to battle, the whole story we'll hear next week, this great victory that Gideon brings, he's got one last question for God goes like this, verses 36 through 38. Wrong book. 36 through 38. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and if it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He was wrung it out, the dew from the fleece, to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. Please, let me test just once more with this fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. 
God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, here's what this looks like, and here's how most people would interpret that passage. Gideon is doubting God, and so he puts God to the test. He says, hey, here's the deal, God. Uh, I'm not quite sure who you are. Uh, not sure, I, I got a little bit cold feet about this massive battle I'm about to go in. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a, a fleece, it's a North Face fleece. I'm going to put that on the ground. And uh, if you make this soaking wet in the morning and the ground's dry, then I'll know that you are God. And what we've done over the years and over history, over Christian history, is we've applied Gideon's fleece into our lives. We realize God is calling us to something phenomenally bigger than our lives, and we get cold feet. And then we say something like this, God, if you will only make someone say a prophetic word over my life, then I will know that it is really you. God, if you will only get me that job, then I will know that you really are the God that you say you are. One time, I know I did this, I had a roommate, and uh, I was about to move into a new apartment. It was me and two other guys. I was the new guy moving in. One bedroom was about four times larger than the other bedroom. Uh, the other two bedrooms were really small, and uh, I was supposed to get the new big bedroom. This was back in my early 20s, and uh, I called the guy, uh, the other roommate called me. He said, hey, I've been in the apartment longer than you. I think I should have the bigger room, and I said, you know what? Flip a coin, and I looked up to God. I was over the phone. I was like, God... <laughs> I'm being a nice guy here. I love you. You just make that coin land on the side that I'll have that big room. We'll be all good. I heard him flip the coin on the other side, and my good friend Dan said, I hate to tell you, but I just won the coin toss. And I remember thinking, God, you're supposed to make it work for me. He's trying to apply Gideon's fleece in all the wrong way. You see, what Gideon is doing in this moment is not testing God. He's actually theologically asking God to define himself. There is a god, a god of dew back in that day. His name was Baal. It was the main god of the land. Baal was the god of many things. In pagan mythology, Baal had a daughter who was the god of the dew. And so when they woke up in the morning and they saw dew on the ground, it was a sign that the gods of the land reigned. Gideon's about to go to battle. He doesn't have theological training. He's never gone to church. He's never heard a sermon. He knows nothing about God except that Jesus appeared to him, gave him a new life, and he's totally out in the open. And he's about to go to battle, and he's like, you know, it would be kind of nice to know at least a little bit about this God. Are you the God of the dew, or is Baal the God of the dew? God shows up. He says, no, 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 no. I'm the God of the dew. <laughs> I'm the God of a lot more than that, too. But for right now, if you got to know if I'm bigger than the God you used to worship, yes, I am. God delights in those prayers. If you don't know who God is, you have a hard time telling others about him. For some of us, we've got this mission on our life. And, and, and what this was for Gideon, it was his theological training. This was his first seminary class. It was him getting a little theology so that he could go to battle properly and learn about God so that he knew God is sovereign. He is not one of many gods. He is God alone and he reigns and he's God of the dew. For some of us, we've been redefined. We're ready to go out on this mission, but the reality is we don't know the first thing about this God of the Bible. And that's a sweet spot to be in. If that's you today, I love that. I remember the first guy that ever discipled me after a year of discipleship, he said, Rafe, you got all the passion in the world. You don't know a thing about God. That's a fine place to be. But what I want to invite you into is a life of discipleship and learning about our God. 
there's no question that's off limits. You're not going to ask God a question that's going to make him stumble. You're not going to come into a room like this and pose a question that's off limits and that you're not supposed to ask because somehow there's some other God out in our society that's bigger than the God of the Bible. He hasn't failed in 2,000 years. He's not going to start failing now. Bring your questions and bring a heart of curiosity. This summer, we're going into this summer of this amazing action. We believe that God is God over the city of Chicago. We believe that prayers make a difference. We believe that fasting produces results. We believe that Jesus is able to end the violence, and nothing else can do it with the same power he can. Some of us don't actually know that that's true yet. we got to go through the school of hard knocks and get out on the street and start praying and then watch God show up. This is how the Spirit moves. I want to invite you to a summer of learning. Ask the hard questions. I want to invite you, actually, as way of application, find someone you don't know. Find someone in this church and say, can I read this book with you? Let's learn together about this God. I need framework to think through this God. The reality is that God has called each of you, if if your faith is in Jesus, to a life of extraordinary, radical love of the life of Christ, the love of Christ, to share his love with your neighbor and with the nations. May we start with learning about the God that has made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we're a little in awe of the life of Gideon, that you could take a coward and make him into a great deliverer. God, it resonates with us because we bring a lot of cowardice into our faith. We bring a lot of trepidation into our faith that we're fearful to go out we're fearful to proclaim we're fearful to tell we're fearful to raise our hands we're fearful to be vocal about our faith we're fearful to go back to our family we're fearful to get baptized God we bring a whole lot of fear oh but God would you remove that God, allow us to learn the lessons of Gideon that we can move past that because of what Christ has done on the cross that we have a new identity God, I pray that you speak uniquely to each of us in this space right now. In Jesus' name.